Hey there, it's August 12th, and this is the One Year Bible Tour, and we're happy to be furnishing you with today's readings from the One Year Bible, and as a tour guide, we will be pointing out highlights that you don't want to miss. Our goal is to help you see how the 66 books of the Bible fit together as a whole. There's a unifying theme with the good news of God's saving work in the center. In the Old Testament, we have the Redeemer anticipated, and in the New Testament, we have the Redeemer revealed. We are looking forward to today's excursion through the Old and New Testament passages. My name is David McAdam, and I'm happy to be your host. We are in the book of Nehemiah today. We have learned how significant the repair of the city walls were in Jerusalem. We have a lot of discussion today about border security and our need for it if we are to deal with illegal trafficking of all kinds. The walls of the city of Jerusalem are a great illustration of it. They provide definition and defense. You know what is within and without the city when you have the perimeter intact. You also have the advantage of their protection against enemies and the strategic vantage points that they give for the city's watchmen. The gates of the cities were places to conduct commercial and legal transactions with rightful responsibility and accountability. The book of Nehemiah offers us more than a historical account. It gives us insight into visionary leadership and project administration. Nehemiah inspires me with his example. He was a God-fearing, get-it-done guy, and he knew how to inspire and mobilize his generation to accomplish great things against all odds in record time. So let's get started by going to our Old Testament passage in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 3, beginning with verse 15, and we will read through to chapter 5, verse 13, and I will be reading from the English Standard Version. And then we'll spend a few moments reflecting upon what we've read and gleaning practical applications. Nehemiah, chapter 3, verse 15, And Shalom, the son of Kolhose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth-zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him the Levites repaired, Rehum the son of Bani. Next to him, Mashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kila, repaired for his district. After him their brothers repaired, Bavai the son of Hanadad, ruler of half the district of Kila. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Meramoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maasiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Binui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section, from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Balal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress, 
and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pediah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emir, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Opposition to the Work Chapter 4 Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads, and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose, and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. 
Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other, and each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. Nehemiah Stops Oppression of the Poor Chapter 5 Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of the wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. And this is the end of our reading from the Old Testament portion today from the book of Nehemiah. Now let's step back and make some observations. The book of Nehemiah records the important efforts that were made to secure Jerusalem with the repair of the city's walls and gates. We have already seen that Nehemiah's wise organization inspired great teamwork. People knew with whom they were working, who was working next to them, and to whom they were accountable. There were over 22 references in chapter 3 to this relatedness. We read the repeated phrases next to him, next to them, or after them, 
at least 22 times. Here is a New Testament application. We are workers together with Christ as He builds His church. According to the grace of God which was given to me, the Apostle Paul writes, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. The church's one foundation is Christ, the sufficiency of His person and the work He accomplished to purchase our salvation. We are baptized by the Spirit into one body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we are all made to drink of this one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Paul then goes on to explain how there is a relationship of interdependence with those with whom we have been positioned and an accountability to the headship of Christ through delegated authority in the local church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul writes, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Nehemiah wisely assigned the people to work on parts of the wall that would provide protection for their immediate interests, walls that defended their particular neighborhoods and families. In Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 23, verses 28 through 30, and chapter 4, verse 13. Notice that Shalom worked together with his daughters in Nehemiah 3.12. And then after him, the son of Barakiah carried out repairs in front of his own quarters in verse 30. Above the horse gate, the priests carried out repairs each in front of his house in verse 28. Men, women, children, farmer and noble, craftsmen and priest, they all worked together with one purpose, to restore the testimony of the Lord, the city of their God and King. There are parallels to the gospel in the sequence of the city gates. The priests were to recognize that their own sacrifices were but placeholders for the perfect once and for all sacrifice of the promised Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, the sheep gate. Bible commentators connect the redemptive activities of the Messiah with other gates as well. At Pentecost, he empowers us to be fishers of men, the fish gate, to go with us in the valley, the valley gate, to remove the rubbish of our old patterns of behavior with his sanctifying power, the rubbish gate, refresh us with the fountain of his indwelling spirit, the fountain gate, cleansing us with the water of his word, the water gate, and giving us his mighty victory as he returns in power to set up his kingdom, the horse gate. Sanballat was a Samaritan leader, an official of the Achaemenid Persian Empire who opposed Nehemiah's work. He attempted to distract, discourage, and hinder the building of the walls of Jerusalem by mocking the workers. He was greatly enraged and insidiously slandered the work in front of the people who support Nehemiah needed. Sanballat was a Horonite, and his friend Tobiah was an Ammonite. They did not have any vested interest in Jerusalem's success. The Arabs and Ashdodites had reasons to be jealous of the progress that the Jews were making, but there was great animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans.
The word Samaritan is used for the first time in the book of Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 2. In the book of the Kings, we have been made well aware of the wayward history of the northern kingdom of Israel, often dubbed Samaria, because of its capital city by that name. Sargon II of Assyria conquered the city of Samaria after a three-year siege started by Shalmaneser V and deported the captives of Israel to Syria. He repopulated Samaria with captives from other lands. Consequently, the few Israelites that remained intermarried with the immigrants and formed a mixed people group that became known as Samaritans. The Jews who returned to Jerusalem and Judea would have nothing to do with the Samaritans. They were considered pagans and racially impure. By the time of Jesus, 400 years later, we learn that there was still great animosity between the purer-bred Jews of the South and the interbred Samaritans of the North. In the Gospel of John chapter 4, verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Not only did Sambalat ridicule the Jewish workers on the wall, but he was ready to start a fight. Despite the enemy's verbal ridicule and continual threats of physical attacks, the work went on. This had a lot to do with Nehemiah's leadership. He knew how to keep his fellow workers motivated. They had a mind to work. In chapter 4, verse 6, he addressed their fear of the enemy and their discouragement due to all the rubble, the residual damage of what the enemy had done, which was getting in the way of construction. He reminded them what was at stake, the testimony of the Lord. He reminded them what they were fighting for. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14, When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. He organized the project so all were involved and appreciated each other's contributions to the work. He continually watched and prayed. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 9, but we prayed to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. The work progressed through prayer and persistent action. Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 6, So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah knew what was at stake. He communicated the importance of the work to his fellow laborers. The enemy used fear tactics to intimidate and confuse. Nehemiah developed a communication system of sounding trumpets that kept workers alert and informed in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. He had a trumpeter standing near him so he could communicate timely warnings to the entire team. Nehemiah assured them that the project would provide needed protection for their families against the real threat of enemy invasion. Border security and a proper mechanism to oversee admission into the city is essential for the prosperity of the inhabitants. Nehemiah must have communicated this effectively, as the people were willing to work night and day. They did not take off their work clothes and always kept a weapon in one hand and a building tool in the other. Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, we read, Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. 
This passage also reminds us that some degree of sacrifice is involved in the building up and protecting of the testimony of the Lord in the church. There are seasons when we will have to sleep in our work clothes, maintain a high alert, and remain on site, performing guard duty at night and builders by day. Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 22. The New Testament application is that our work for the gospel requires both building in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 10 through 17, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 19, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12, and battling, Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 20. It requires that every member be ready with both a sword and the trowel in hand. In chapter 5, Nehemiah hears of the financial hardships of his people. Many are having to borrow money to buy food and are being charged heavy interest by their creditors. As long as a person is operating according to the old nature, that is the flesh, there will be self-interest, self-deception, self-justification, leading to disputes, fights, and oppression. We read this in James chapter 4, verse 1. Due to a famine, there were genuine needs in the community that were overlooked or taken advantage of. According to the Torah, provision should be made for the needs of the poor. The nobles and officials were lending money to their brothers and charging high interest that forced people to have to put their families into slavery in order to make repayments. There were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 3 and 5. Nehemiah is angry. He takes counsel with himself. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 7. This is unlike the practice of the rich farmer in Jesus' parable who mistook the needs of his body for his soul, his mind, emotions, will, and educated conscience. In Luke chapter 12, verse 19, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. It is advisable when we are angry to slow down and take reasonable consultation with our souls. Bring all the facts to your mind. Do not give in to the cry of your emotions alone. Commit your will to do what is pleasing to God and in the best interests of others. That may be the hard thing, like confronting others with a difficult conversation. Jesus outlines a way to resolve conflict in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. It seems that in Nehemiah's situation, the exploitation of members required a general meeting. Therefore I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Nehemiah chapter 5 verses 8 and 9. Nehemiah reminds them that slavery has been part of their history. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. The Jews were slaves in Egypt. God's intention is always to set the captive free. Why then were they enslaving their brothers? The moneylenders were silent and could not find a word to say. Nehemiah asked them to give back what they have taken as collateral on the loans and charge no interest when making loans to their people. The priests were called to ratify an oath made by the nobles and officials that they would do all that was promised. Nehemiah shakes the folds of his garment 
pronouncing a curse on any who fail to keep this promise. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 13. Now let's go to our next stop on our Bible reading tour to the New Testament, the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 25 through 40. The Unmarried and the Widowed. 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers, The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. And this is the end of our reading from the New Testament portion from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Paul is very aware that in times of heavy Christian persecution, there is great stress upon married couples. He refers to the present moment as being a time of distress. He could be referring to a famine, or simply that the church was going through difficulties. Therefore, those couples who were engaged to wed or contemplating marriage should think carefully about the implications of these hardships upon their relationships. Paul admits that marriage can increase worldly troubles. In his mind, there is less pressure on a spouse if they face these troubles such as persecution or famine alone. They can pursue the Lord without having to factor in the cost rendered to spouse and family. The time is short, and therefore Christians need to be sober-minded and focused, married or not. There are God-given responsibilities associated with being single or married. The Apostle Paul at this time in his life is single, and recognizes that he is free to risk travel and long periods of pioneer evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. 
but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32-34 through 34. Paul's comments are not intended to be a disapproval of marriage. In his other writings, he shows his high regard for the sacred covenant of marriage as a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22-33, through 33, Paul also reminds his readers that marriage does not always lead to bliss. There are challenges of hardships, and it requires selfless concern and covenant loyalty to one's spouse. A person who is single can also be fulfilled and happy. God gives opportunities for service to both those who are married and those who are single. Notice Paul's warning, only marry in the Lord. Paul is clarifying that widows are free to remarry, but only to believers. In this culture, when men and women choose their own partners, it is important that Christians marry only those who are in the Lord. We are moving on now to our next stop on the Bible reading tour, the Book of Psalms, the Bible's song and prayer book, and we are reading Psalm 32, verses 1 through 11. And reading Psalm 32 today is Peter Healy. Psalm 32, a Psalm of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Thank you, Peter. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. What great news! This is a maskil, a thanksgiving hymn, written by King David. He expresses the joy of knowing his sins have been forgiven. Prior to being honest to God about his sin, he was miserable. In verses 3 through 4, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. But when he confessed his sin, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, 
David learns through the prophet that the Lord has taken away his sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14, and he is able to worship with joy. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 32, verse 5. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 32, verse 11. David's joy resounds God's faithfulness to the repentant sinner in such a way that it is echoed in the New Testament. Romans chapter 4, verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. David can sing, You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. And verse 7. God promises to provide daily guidance if we have a willingness to heed His instruction. And John 7, verse 17. If anyone is willing to do His will, Jesus said, He will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. This is consistent with the Lord's promise in verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. David sums up in verse 10, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Our final Bible reading today is from the book of Proverbs, and reading Proverbs will be Joel Chaffee. Proverbs 21, verses 5 through 7. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. The violence of the wicked will sweep them away because they refuse to do what is just. Thank you, Joel. These three proverbs show that our actions bear consequences. Careful planning reaps its reward. Hasty planning leads to poverty. Dishonesty in business does not pay off in the long run. It is deadly. And violence is not God's way and will catch up with you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us an example of a persistent leader in Nehemiah. We ask that we will be faithful to fulfill the work you have called us to. Keep us stationed with our brothers and sisters under the authority of your word. Let us hear the clear sounding of your warnings and heed your instructions. Build up the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church. May we faithfully proclaim the good news that you have provided the means for our sins to be forgiven and for our release from slavery to sin and the fear of death. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've made good progress with today's excursion from our Bible reading, and we hope that you can join us tomorrow as we continue. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write us at podcast at newlife.org. And if you would like to know more about New Life Community Church and its many ministries, you can go to our website, newlife.org. And if you are in the New England area, we invite you to our musical theater production of The Book of Ruth at the Groton Dunstable Performing Arts Center in Groton, Massachusetts from September 15th to the 24th. Tickets are available at newlifefinearts.org. So until next time, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Shalom. Shalom.